involved in the church when I was about uh, 16 years old. Um, there's a gentleman in our church by the name of Bernard Sims, and, and Mr. Sims was very influential in making sure that, that I got involved in church. Um, so I started getting involved around 16, started uh, coming to youth groups and um, also going to Sunday school. Uh, one of the first seeds that kind of got planted in my life at a very early age was my Sunday school teacher, who um, happened to also be my head football coach, Don Patterson. So it was amazing to me to see a man that uh, not only preached the word in Sunday school and taught it, but he also lived it in his life. And when you have men in your life like that, um, you, you start to grow closer to the Lord because you see this example in your life. Um, around that age, I, as a 16-year-old boy, I had a, a very strong weakness, and it was 16-year-old girls. Um, and, and the Lord knew this, and he knew I was heading down some paths that I probably shouldn't be heading down, so he brought this uh, young lady in my life by the name of Jennifer Swepton. We started dating and um, started getting to know each other. And she called me one day and said, hey, uh, there's a revival going on up at um, LFO Stadium. Would you like to go? And I said, yeah, sure. So we went. Um, I didn't know what the Lord had planned for me at that time. Can't remember much about the sermon or the words that were said. Um, I just remember God working in my heart, dealing with me many things that I've done in life. Um, I was a 16-year-old young man on a day who was trying to be all cool. Um, but much like I'm doing now, I, I just remember crying. Came to the end of the sermon and I went down front and accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then just a few weeks later, right back there, um, I was baptized. And I started my journey with Christ, and I can tell through different stages of life that God has put people in my life, and he's been preparing me for something. Uh, I spent several years here in church working with the youth, uh, teaching Sunday school. Um, Billy Crystal, when he came on board, we developed a friendship that um, kind of grew and grew, and we started working in the youth, and it was, it was really a great time. Relationships were formed that I still have today. Um, and then just a couple of years ago, I started teaching in an adult Sunday school class. And um, I know everybody thinks as a Sunday school teacher, you think you have the best Sunday school class, and, and I'm no different. I think mine is phenomenal. God has put some amazing people uh, that I get to get with every week, get to meet and talk. And they teach me a lot more probably than teach them um, and it was through this process that I just kept fulfilling this calling that, that God wanted more he wanted me to do more and so that's when I, I through many months of prayer and, and talking to God about it I felt this calling in my life to go into ministry um, so I started the journey in seminary um, it's been an interesting journey uh, I got my, my bachelor's degree in accounting so going 
from an accounting background to getting your master's degree in Christian ministry, there's a big switch there. I remember my first Old Testament class that I was taking, and the professor told me, he said, I need you to write a 3,000-word essay, exegesis paper, on the book of Ruth. And I was like, wow, okay. So the next day, I had to call Dennis, and I said, hey, Dennis, what is an exegesis paper? <laughs> And he was very kind to explain it to me, um, and I did okay in the class. Uh, the great thing about going through seminary is, is Mr. David Cox. So I've got him, I call him my professor here, because anytime I have a question, um, he's been there to feed into me. Something I greatly appreciate. We don't know the next stage that this ministry will have for my wife and I. Um, the only thing we ask for is your prayers. Um, I rest in the assurance and faith of knowing that God knows where he needs me. He knows the doors that will be open, and he knows where I need to go. Um, so thank you, and I'll now turn it over to my wife. speaker in the family. I had to bring my notes. And um, whoever decided that I should go after Joe, Dennis, <laughs> did not plan the schedule well. But first I just wanted to say um, how proud I am of Joe. He's always spent so much time preparing his Sunday school lessons and his personal devotions. And about two years ago, um, after our son got married and we were empty nesters, he told me that he wanted to get his master's degree in Christian ministry from Liberty University. My first thought was, really? I mean, you know, we were empty nesters and I was ready to, you know, have a little fun, relax, and just enjoy being a couple again. And we own a business. We, I mean, any of you who, who have ever done that, that's 24-7, that's already a lot of work, so, um, I, but that's what he wanted to do, so I, I was totally behind him, um, but it left a lot of people saying, okay, why, why would you want to do this, it's not like you're, you know, getting a master's degree to climb the corporate ladder, he was already there, he didn't need anything else, so, um, you know, why would you want to do this? Spend the money, the time, effort. But the reason is, is that he felt called. And the truth is, we're all called. Um, Joe and I have been fortunate to work in this church in many areas. Um, from children to the finances to bookkeeping to Sunday school teacher, just anything you can imagine. Um, we've also like worked in our community, not only just as volunteering in the community, but also in Christian organizations in the community that help lead others to Christ. We've made a little bit of a difference, and we've had a blast doing it. And if you haven't had the opportunity to be involved, get involved. You don't have to know all the answers. Definitely, if God can use us, he can use anyone. But we are answering the call of faithful obedience, and I know that Christ will take care of whatever happens next. 
I'm very excited to find out what this journey means for us, and we would appreciate your prayers and encouragement along the way. Well, good morning. I'm honored to have been asked by Joe to be one of the, uh, the two people that actually come and give an ordination charge, if you will. Uh, so many people have already mentioned this morning, including uh, one of my mentors, Colin Croson. Wow, you dress up pretty good. Uh, this is not how I usually dress, unless I'm standing between a couple marrying them or in a much somber, more somber uh, method. But uh, I did bring out somebody, and I tried to think of who it was. Somebody here, after I was ordained at this church, gave me the official Burning Bush Baptist ordained tie. If you know who that is, or if that's you, please let me know. I would love to uh, love to have that. And so, Joe, you can borrow it anytime you would like. I remember vividly my ordination into the ministry. And it, uh, as an associate pastor and youth pastor here at Burning Bush many years ago, Burning Bush recommended to my home church back in Louisville, Kentucky, that I be ordained. And so many of my dear friends from right here at Burning Bush actually surprised me by hopping on our then new church bus, driving the five and a half hours up to Louisville for the Sunday night ordination service, and then turning around and driving right back. And uh, you'll never know how much that meant to me. And so for you being here this morning and sharing this time with Joe and with Jennifer and with their family, it means so, so much. What most people don't realize, and David mentioned it uh, before, is that when someone is going to be ordained by a church, they have to endure or sit through an ordination council where they're grilled by all the other ordained ministers, or if it's a deacon ordination, by the other deacons of that church. Joe successfully survived that, uh, that council last Sunday. And Joe, let me just say, you got away easy. Because remember, I mentioned that Burning Bush recommended to my home church that they ordain me. So guess what? I had to endure an ordination council here at Burning Bush and then another one at my home church uh, that, uh, that same Sunday. So, like I said, you got to wait easy. I learned a lot through that process, though, and through building up. Even though I've never been called to cemetery like they have, um, I have learned a lot through that process and through 35 years of, of ministry. Many of the lessons that I've learned through these years involve failures and, and difficulties, but also great times of joy. Every one of those, the sorrows, the joys, the difficulties, every one of them, I count as blessings. I first met Joe when Jeff Sims and I were coaching our boys in soccer and Little League baseball right over at Boynton. Jeff came to me at the beginning of that first season together when we agreed to coach. He says, I know a guy who would be a great assistant coach, plus his son's pretty athletic, so that helped. The three of us coached together for many years uh, through our boys' seasons. And through that time with Joe, I began to learn what kind of a character and what kind of character Joe Callahan had. And I promise Joe I won't share all of the conversations that the three of us had um, during that time. It's a big deal for a church to set aside someone and ordain someone as a minister. It first and foremost takes a calling from God to do it. 
But as David mentioned earlier, God calls every one of us to be ministers and preachers, doesn't he? Every single one of us, Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and in the ends of the earth. Our role ambassadors right here at Burning Bush still learn the RA motto, We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. That's all of us. So all of us have been called to serve. But what does it take to be ordained, to be set apart? Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter, uh, and then again to Titus about the characteristics of being a minister. Dennis is going to share some of those in just a couple of minutes. From my words of encouragement to you, Joe, I want all of us to focus on what I've learned it means to be an ordained life. And I sum it up in two words, above reproach. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh Protestant minister for almost 30 years, said, if there is anything else a man can do other than preach, he ought to do it. The pulpit is no place for him. The ministry is not merely something an individual can do, but it's what he must do. To enter into the pulpit, he says, that necessity must be laid on him. A God-called man would rather die than live without preaching. He also said preachers are born, they're not made. You'll never teach a man to be a preacher if he's already not one. Basically, only those who believe and know that they are chosen by God for the pulpit should proceed in undertaking this sacred task. Joe, to stay above reproach and to serve as one of God's chosen pastors, you must have that inner compulsion to preach the word. Talking and sharing life with you for all these many years, I have no doubt that you have that compulsion. Live it. From the age of 17, when I accepted God's call into full-time ministry, he placed that burden within me too. And these gentlemen that are standing before you, our pastor, all have that fire. And I know he's got the same fire in you. Keep fanning that flame. Serve above reproach. Don't let that flame die out. Stay connected to God through prayer, through study, and with an open heart to see and sense the divine appointments that he has for you. Those of you who don't feel that compulsion, that obsession to serve God with all of your life in this way, many of us don't understand how tough and consuming it can be. And as awesome as it is to serve in this way, I've learned it does come with a caution. My second point, live above reproach by protecting your family and balancing your family versus ministry time. Now, I'm going to be transparent with you. This is where I, as a minister, almost blew it in my ministry. It was my greatest weakness, my greatest failure, and as a result, my biggest lesson. When I was serving as the youth pastor and the associate pastor at South Seminole Baptist, I took two of my students who were feeling this same call into the ministry to the National Youth Workers Convention down in Atlanta, Georgia. The second morning of a four-day convention, Andy Stanley shared a message with me that was entitled, with all of us, that was entitled, There's Not Enough Time to Get It All Done. Basically, Andy said never in his life was he ever at church 
And his pastor came to him and said, Andy, you've worked far too long today and this week. Why don't you go home and spend more time with your family? He also went on to say never in his life was he ever at home playing with his kids and with his wife. And they came to him and said, Dad, you've played with us too much. You need to go back to church and work some more. It doesn't happen. You see, our jobs, our ministries, they, they Im implore us to give 100% of our time. Our families crave that 100% of our time. No one has 200% time they can give. So Andy said, you have to cheat. But now the question is, where do you cheat? You've got to cheat somewhere. This is so applicable, even to all of us who are not in the hot seat today like Joe is. In our jobs, in our careers, our extracurricular activities, where do you cheat? For most ministers, and I was definitely one of those, I cheated my family. You see, during that season of my ministry, I was a very successful youth pastor, a couple hundred students every week, hours each week spent studying and, and planning the student ministry activities, events, the worship times. I was eating lunch in the school five days a week. I tried to go to all of their extracurricular activities, the other students. I was traveling around the country with youth builders and the Tennessee Baptist Convention, going and teaching seminars to other youth workers and, and youth pastors. And it's so funny. I would be teaching them how important it was to balance their time and their relationship with God was the number one priority. Number two was their family. Number three was their ministry. And all the while, I was the worst at it. My wife who was at home with three small kids, can tell you painfully, I was never home. And even when I was home, I really wasn't home. My mind was elsewhere. In that message, Andy said, it's like giving your wife a very large rock and asking her to hold on to that rock. And what that rock symbolizes is the pressure and the time and the, the, what it's going to take to be in ministry. And it's like, honey, hold on to that rock. I know it's real busy right now at, at church. Uh, we've got this youth revival coming up. We've got this disciple now coming up. Just hold that rock. Vacation's coming. And she'll say, okay, I'll hold the rock. I'll hold the rock. We miss you at home, but, but I'll hold the rock. Just hold on. Mission trip's coming. After the mission trip, I'll have some time. We'll spend some family time. Okay, I'm holding this rock. And what Andy said before long, your wife's ability to hold that rock is going to overtake her desire to hold that rock. And before long, it's going to fall. And then Andy said, I'll never forget these words because it really hit home. He said, some of you sitting here today need to go and check out of this hotel and go home. Because you know you left your wife holding that large rock. Your home is in distress. You may have left on bad terms to come here to this convention. You need to go home. God was dealing with me so, so heavy at that time. And had I not had those two students with me there, again, halfway through this convention, I would have done that in a heartbeat and probably should have. Instead, I went to my phone afterwards Call my wife and apologize. If you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, 2, Ephesians 6, 4, you will find that if a man does not know how to manage his own family, he will not know how to take care of God's church. The first flock of a pastor is his own family, as pastor dad 
A pastor's qualification for the church starts in his home management. And as he leads them up in the discipleship and the admonition, the admonition of the Lord. Joe, I'll tell you, if you mishandle your responsibility to your wife and your family, it's only a matter of time before you'll lose your ministry. I'm blessed that God gave me a, a wife full of mercy, full of grace, and saw me through those times until I realized how much of a knucklehead I was and where I was failing and I got back on track. I still struggle at times, even in my ministry or at the radio station, but God has seen me through. Stay above reproach. Protect your relationship with your wife, with your kids, with your grandkids. One more thing that I've learned through student ministry and, and ministry in general, and I'm still learning, stay above reproach by being real. You're not to build Joe world. You're building Jesus world. Titus 1.7 also says that a pastor must remain humble, gentle, sober, peaceful, and respectful. I wasted far too much time and effort trying to build Ted World. <coughs> Ted World looks like the biggest and coolest youth ministry in town. It, it looks like the most people that knows me personally and, and how many attaboys I could receive when I filled in for the pastor on Sunday mornings. Joe, I know all of those things that Paul wrote to Titus. Humber, humble, gentle, sober, peaceful, respectful. And I have the utmost faith in you and how you're going to follow God's will for your life. Church family, live above reproach. I hope God is speaking to you through Joe's ordination service today. You too are called by God to serve. It's probably not as an ordained pastor, but just as important as a minister teacher, a minister welder, a minister accountant, a minister student. Whatever you do, God has called you to serve and to be an ambassador. Live above reproach with your family time and family devotion. You may need to reevaluate your priorities today. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible does say to provide for our families. 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Many try to live a lifestyle that God never intended for them to live, and it pulls you away from your family. But that's another sermon for another day. And finally, live above reproach by being real. Do you struggle with being humble? Gentle, sober, peaceful, respectful. Today, as Joe is being ordained or set apart, allow God to change and improve you. Joe, I love you. I'm proud of you. What you're willing to let God do through your life. Thank you, Ted. Appreciate your uh, honesty and your transparency. Jennifer, if I had been thinking, I wouldn't have made myself at the end of all the speakers either. So the next service, you and I go first. <laughs> Joey was making me kind of nervous a while ago. In fact, he even had the folks up in the presentation booth a little fooled because he was about to preach half of my sermon. <laughs> so I'm glad you stopped when you finally did. And uh, I won't be preaching, obviously, as long as I usually do because Joey already preached half of it, so... In 2006, my son Travis and I stood in a very long line at Six Flags over Texas. We were waiting to ride the brand new roller coaster, Goliath. 
and there's a picture of it here somewhere, and just looking at that thing when you're down there looking up at it, I'll be honest with you, it is somewhat terrifying. Let me read from the Six Flags website. Are you brave enough to battle the giant? As far as roller coasters go, there are beasts, there are giants, and there is Goliath. Find out why bigger is better on this intense 70 mile per hour body blaster that is not for the timid. Any coaster that reaches over 200 feet, that's 20 stories in the sky, earns the title of hyper coaster. It is a rare breed that will take you straight to the sky. Once you get to the top of that first insane hill, you'll waste no time in careening right back down a mind numbing 170 feet. Then you'll pop over the enormous drop like it was nothing on your way to an even steeper 175 foot drop. In case you can't tell, everything on a hyper coaster is supersized. Another 12 story drop is waiting for you, then a barreling race up and down a 540 degree spiral that make, will make you feel about a thousand feet tall. You'll bank hard over shop turns and stomp up and down mega hills. How do a whopping 4G sound? Because that's what you get on this mega monster coaster. Joe, being a pastor is a lot like a roller coaster. And you are about to start the most amazing ride of your life. And being a pastor will make the life like child's play. There'll be amazing highs. There'll be surprising turns. There'll be unexpected twists. And to be honest with you, some disheartening lows. Today, you're still sitting on the platform. That's that area where they come up and they put that three-point harness on you. And then that Ride assistant pulls that bar down onto your waist, kind of ratches it down. And then the other guy gives some announcements. He'll say something like, you know, if you have sunglasses or hats on, you might want to take them off. Please keep your hands inside the car. If you're pregnant, you probably don't need to ride this ride. Hopefully that doesn't apply to you today. <laughs> so on and so forth. Well, there are some things that you need to know before you climb onto this ride that we call being a pastor. The Apostle Paul, you might say, is the ride instructor, and he gives what you might call an owner's manual to would-be coaster riders. This owner's manual is written to a young man by the name of Timothy as a primer on pastoring. And I just want to draw some truths today from this epistle that kind of gives us some parameters about being a pastor. And as Ted mentioned earlier, and rightfully so, the things that Paul tells Timothy have application for all of us. All of us are ministers, pastors, as David alluded to also. There's a unique calling there. But all of us have been called to ministry and called to serve. So this is for all of us who are Christians. And I'm just going to kind of follow a simple outline, who, what, when, where, why and how. Number one, remember who. A pastor must not just think of his people and how to please them, 
he must remember who he is really serving. If we displease God, it doesn't matter who we please. And if we please God, it doesn't matter who we displease. 2 Timothy 4.1 says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. So Timothy, and he's already started it back in the previous chapter, he's giving this charge to Paul. Or Paul started it in the earlier chapter. So Paul is giving Timothy this charge. Charge means a forceful directive. It might be when you look at your child and go, listen to me, I'm serious about this. It's that kind of idea here. And this is a solemn charge because God and Jesus Christ are the real audience. And you know, it's easy for all of us, regardless of your vocation, to sometimes forget who we serve. Sometimes we serve a job. Sometimes we serve materialism. Sometimes we serve a hobby. Remember, you are laboring in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Remember the what. Simply put, in verse 2, as an ordained minister, you are called to preach the word. This is not a suggestion. It's an active imperative here because it's God's word that changes lives. Don't turn from it. Water it down. Don't be embarrassed by it. Preach and teach it as if lives depend on it. Because they do. The word preach means to announce, proclaim, set forth, and make known. Don't stop doing that. You are called to preach the word. There are lots of other responsibilities that go along with being a pastor. And by the way, a lot of those aren't necessarily even found in Scripture. There's one thing that's clear in Scripture. You are to preach the Word. That's the most important thing that you're called to do. It's easy to get busy fulfilling a lot of other roles, lots of other demands. There'll be lots of things screaming at you. It's easy to put the urgent over what's important. But preaching is your first responsibility. That also means that you should do it to the best of your ability. Don't shortcut your preparation. And I also believe that it means that you should make a lifelong commitment to being an excellent communicator. When Lyndon B. Johnson was elected president, he asked his good friend, Billy Graham, if he would take a position in his administration. Without a moment's thought, Billy said to the president of the United States, Sir, I believe that Jesus Christ has called me to preach the gospel. To me, that is the highest calling any man could have on earth. He turned the position down for that reason. Well said. Remember the where. The next charge is be prepared. This literally means to be instant on, to be always on, to be ready to proclaim the word wherever you are. You know doesn't mean that you're going to be preaching sermons all the time, but whether you're hanging out with guys in the gym or maybe with a group of guys in a local burger joint or you're hanging out with your grandkids or counseling or teaching on Sunday morning, whatever it might be, always be prepared. Do a great job of getting ready to preach. 
keep it up and be ready everywhere. Verses, the end of the chapter, verses 15 and 16, it says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Preserve in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then don't forget, and Ted did a great job with this, your first responsibility is to the church that lives in your home, to your family, your wife, your adult children, your grandkids. They love you. They look up to you. They respect you. They listen to you. Don't forget to minister to them, or it will diminish the effectiveness of your ministry. Remember the when. It says in season and out of season, and that means that you're, you're ready to preach whether it's convenient or not. You're ready to preach when people are going to listen or not. Always be ready. Remember the why. I'm going to drop down to verses 3 and 4. And the reason we're to take all of this so seriously is because the day is here when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And it goes on to say what we know. More and more people just want to hear what they want to hear. It says with what their itching ears want to hear. And do we not see that? Watered down gospel ministries that are just built on emotion Ministries built on positive thinking, don't offend anybody. And notice it says that people will gather around them a great number of teachers, and that certainly seems to be the case now. These types of ministries gather great big crowds, and you can hear them on podcasts, and you can hear them read about them in books, and they're on TV, and they're you know all over the place. But make sure you're, you are preaching the entire truth of God. Joe, I don't know if you realize this yet, but as a minister, there will be times when the temptation will be to say things that you know people want to hear because, let's face it, preachers are like anybody else. They want to be liked. And sometimes the temptations are there to omit parts of God's word that people don't want to hear. Avoid subjects that will be offensive. Preach the whole word. People will disagree with you. They'll let you know, too, when they do. That doesn't matter. It's okay because, first and foremost, you answer to God. Remember the how. And this passage lists seven different ways that pastors must preach. First three are the first two verses, and then the others show up in verse five, just real quickly. Correct means to appeal to the mind. Rebuke, appeal to the will so that people will change their behavior. Encourage, that's appealing to the heart. And it's especially important, Joey mentioned this, after you've done the correcting and the rebuking. Keep your head in all situations. It means to stay calm and settle when things are unsettled around you. If you are up and down all the time, people will lose respect for you and for your ministry. As much as possible, try to stay even, even keeled. Think before you react. Endure hardships. Tough times may come. That's just part of it. Do the work of an evangelist. You know, work means, it kind of implies here that things aren't necessarily going to be easy. I read a story about a speaker who had been invited to speak at student chapel at Moody uh, College up there in Chicago. And uh, they had announced that right before he came to the, the pulpit that he was going to be speaking on evangelism. And all the students just almost let out this audible <sighs> groan. But he walked up there and he opened his Bible and he just said a couple words. Just do it. And then he sat down 
and chapel was over. But he made the point. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Literally means leave nothing undone. That's the correct, the renewed, the encouraged. Stay calm, hang tight, share Christ, do your duty. And then the final challenge I'd like to share with you is found in the last phrase of verse 2. With great patience and careful instruction. As you work with people, you will need great patience and careful instruction. Because we're all a work in progress. Sometimes ministers tend to think that everybody needs to think like them. And sometimes they, you know, everybody needs to attend the stuff that I put out there and the programs and the events and the services that I have worked on for folks. And if they don't, they ministers sometimes get frustrated. And sometimes they even give up on folks. This verse is very plain. Keep on instructing carefully. To be patient with everybody. Because God is not done working in any of us. Don't give up on people. We're not building our kingdoms, or as Ted alluded to. We're not building our worlds. That's not what we're about. We're building God's kingdom, and God didn't give up on any of us. On a personal note, I want to thank you for pouring into so many of our students through the years. Just the comments I've heard from our students as they, as they found out that you were being ordained. That's pretty awesome. Many of their parents would love to tell you that if they could come up here to speak today. As your pastor, thank you for serving the people of this church in just so many areas, and thank you for supporting me through these years. And then I have one last piece of advice. This is not found in Paul's advice here. But years ago, I was sitting in a homiletics class, which is uh, basically a class where they teach you how to preach, the science and art of preaching. And they had brought in this humble gentleman who was in his 70s that pastored this large church in the area. Just a humble, godly man. And somebody that all the students knew and respected. Just, just you know, just this fantastic preacher and pastor so they brought him in and uh, he talked for the better part of the class time and uh, just kind of talked about preaching and how he prepared and all those things and then he had a little question and answer time at the end and uh, so somebody asked a question they said what is the last thing you do before you walk up to the pulpit so all of us you know students we're just we're just like on the edge like what is this guy going to say? You know, what could he possibly, you know, what, what does he say those last steps there? You know, give me the power like he gave Elijah or, or something like that. You know, we're just trying to figure out what it is he's going to say, you know, kind of on the edge of our seats. You know, it's a good question. The last thing I do before I walk up to the pulpit is I check my zipper. <laughs> so, Joe, that's the final word today. <laughs> Always check your zipper.